there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. There's a terrible force acting on this planet that keeps people asleep and prevents them from awakening. And this is all made possible through identity theft. Now, identity theft is a big deal these days. It's a big crime spree of identity theft. There's an identity stolen in America every three seconds, according to the latest commercial, which means who knows what the truth is. It means that people are having their identity stolen. Well, what does that really mean? That somebody else is using their credit card, that somebody else is using their social security number, that somebody else is using this or somebody else is using that, that somebody else is pretending to be who you are. So this brings things into perspective. Your identity has been stolen. There is someone else pretending to be who you are. The problem is, is you don't know it. And that's how they can operate with impunity. Your identity is stolen. It's not like your house is broken into and ransacked and things are stolen from it. You go home, you look and you go, ah, somebody's broken into my house. I feel so violated. But when your identity is stolen, you don't feel violated at all because you don't even know it. It's something that happens outside of your awareness until one day you get the bill, the credit card bill. And it's like, I didn't charge a $25,000 trip to the Swiss Alps. And you call your credit card company up and they say, well, here it is. And you said, and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And you had all the numbers and you say, no, that wasn't me. This is the condition we find ourselves in when we begin to find ourselves. We've all had our identity stolen, not switched at the hospital at birth, but shortly thereafter, we got infected somehow. And the somehow was by being around other people who had lost their identities. We're born slightly awake with the emotional center, which of course is the most important center for us, free from negative emotions. A little baby is not born with negative emotions. People say, oh yes they are. If you make a loud noise, they're startled and they're afraid and they'll cry. Yes, but that's not a negative emotion. That's an instinctive emotion. That's an instinctive reaction. That's not a negative emotion. A negative emotion is something else. Because we don't know what negative emotions are, we don't know what else. We confuse them. We confuse all of our emotions. We have positive emotions, negative emotions, instinctive emotions, unconscious emotions. We have all kinds of emotions that we don't know anything about. Well, how are you feeling? I don't know. Should I know? I don't know. I, I feel a little, I don't know. I just kind of feel a little off. Well, what kind of an emotion is that? Well, I don't know. You, do you see what I mean? We're very foggy in this area of emotions. And this is because the emotional center is the most important center for us. This is the worst place for us to be foggy. Now, in the beginning, we have to clear the fog out of the intellectual center so that we can get some new knowledge and new ideas so that we can begin to approach the emotional center with a different kind of understanding. So we start off with the intellectual center, but we can't stay there long because we stay there long. We start to build a house. We start to get way too comfortable. We start to nest. And once you start nesting in the intellectual center, you're not going to move on. You just won't do it because imagination will fill up everything in that intellectual center's house that is lacking. It'll just fill it up and satisfy you and you won't go beyond that.
Our identities are gradually stolen as we learn to imitate the negative emotions of those around us. What we learn through imitation is how to identify at every moment, how to identify with our thoughts, how to identify with our feelings, how to identify with the things that happen in outer life. When does a child start to have problems with toys? When he tries to take one of his. Before that, the problem starts when the child identifies with the toy and can't tell himself from the toy. So when someone takes his toy, they took his toy. They didn't take a toy, the toy. Somebody goes and picks a flower, no problem. They pick your flower from your garden without your permission, and there's a problem. Identification. And that's where negative emotions come from. Negative emotions don't come from somebody taking a kid's toy. Let's say a kid has so many toys that they don't even know what their toys are. Somebody comes along and they take one. The kid doesn't even miss it. Is that a problem? No. It's only a problem when the kid thinks it's my toy, when the kid is identified with the toy. Now, the problem with us is we're all kids and we're all identified. And we think that that's mine and that's mine and that's mine and this is mine and that's mine. And you're attacking my thoughts, you're attacking my ideas, you're attacking my feelings, you're attacking my identity, you're attacking my image of myself, you're attacking my picture of myself. Then we have problems. You're trying to steal what's mine. And then we have problems. And those problems are called negative emotions. And we learn that from the people around us. Here, this is yours. This is just for you. I bought this just for you because I love you so much. Now you take care of this because this is yours. And now you're stuck. Because if you really love this person and you gotta love them because they're the ones feeding you and giving you stuff. So now you take that whole identity thing with it. Well, this is mine. Well, who am I? Well, it doesn't matter. Who am I? I am now defined by the things that have been given to me, by the things that I own, by the things that I identify with. So who am I? Uh, you see how the shift happens? Our identity is stolen. I'm no longer me. Now I'm these things that I call mine. My identity has effectively been stolen. So we gradually are imprisoned without realizing it. The only way out is development of consciousness. <laughs> Why does he always have to say that? Because that's always the way out. The way out is always the development of consciousness. The way out of dark, the way out of darkness is light. What makes darkness go away? More darkness, no, light, light. Light makes darkness go away. So the way out of this dark place of thinking that we are something instead of what we actually are is light. If I can see the truth, then I can begin to step away from the lie, that's how it happens. The emotional center is contaminated with unnecessary emotions that come from identification. So here comes the emotional center born onto the scene, clean. And in the hospital room, people start moving around and kicking up dust and dirt and coughing and bringing in things on their coats and jackets and dresses. And it starts to collect on the emotional center. And so the next thing you know, this clean emotional center starts to get fuzzy. And it's like a Petri dish. Not only does it get fuzzy, it starts to actually grow cultures of the things that get in there. And the next thing you know, it's totally contaminated. And where did the contamination come from? Outside. It did not come from inside. It came from outside. So essence then, that which is born with a clean slate almost, for our purposes, for this, for, for what we're talking about, for our purposes, essence isn't really born with a clean slate. You're born an individual. But 
essence is born a little awake with a clean emotional center. And then it starts to collect, be coated with this stuff from outside. And that coating turns into personality, and then it turns into false personality. We've talked about how personality turns into false personality before, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. And so then we lose our original center of gravity. Our original center of gravity is this clean slate, essence, the clean emotional center that's born. That's our original center of gravity. But then we start to collect all this stuff from these other people that we imitate, and what we imitate is negative emotions. We start to collect that, and slowly our center of gravity shifts from who we are to what we have, to who we think we are, to who we think we should be, to who they think we should be, to what they have given us, to what we call our own, to what we call our own selves, our own possessions, our own name, our own body. And so slowly, ever so slowly and gradually, the shift just occurs. The next thing you know, the identity theft is complete. You no longer know who you are. And you never really had much of a chance to find out who you were because the bombardment from outside starts so quickly and is so all-pervasive. From then on, we're invented people. Invented people living phony lives. A patchwork of acquired thoughts, feelings, attitudes, beliefs, mannerisms that are constantly growing at the expense of essence. It's like a quilt. Aunt Tilly's got this piece over here and she throws that in for the quilt. And mom's got this whole big box that she's been saving for you from the time she wanted to have a little baby. When she was a little girl, she started saving these dolls and this and that, and she was gonna give them all to you. Here, these are all yours. These are for Nancy, or here, these are for Billy. And so Billy now, it wasn't Billy before, it wasn't Nancy before, Billy now has a name and a place to hold all these things. A false identity, a false personality is beginning to develop. And so all these things that they give us, all these gifts that they give us, begin to add to that. Coat, coat, coat essence more and more until we don't know who we are anymore. If you, you ever find an old book in the library or an old magazine from back in the 40s or the 50s or the 30s or the 20s and you look at some of the fashions and the hairdos and stuff, and you look at it and go, God, how can everybody wear that? You know, how can people do that? You know, you look at kids today, you know, and, and they're all, be, you know, they're being individuals. And you could not pick one out from another. They all wear the same clothes. They all have the same hair. They all, it's all pretty much the same. But they are absolutely, no, I'm expressing myself. I'm being an individual. What they mean is I'm not being like you. I'm being like everybody else I identify with. But I don't identify with you anymore because I want my own identity now. And where do they get their own identity? Well, from everybody else around them. So now they've selected a group from which they want to get their own identity. But it's still the same thing. And we look at that and we go, oh man, you got a lot to learn, kid. But what we don't see is we got a lot to learn, kids. So you look back at some fashion from the 30s or the 40s, back in the 20s, and all the guys wore these straw hats with straight brims and boaters hats or whatever they called them, you know, and you look at that and you go, everybody wore them, everybody had a bow tie, everybody had one of these hats, everybody had spats, everybody had this, and you thought, you know, they all looked alike. They all had their hair cut the same way. It was all parted the same way. And we look at that and we go, how could they be so foolish? And then if you will take that same eye and turn it on us right now, that's us. That's what we're doing. That's how we're living. Look at the cars people are driving. Oh, who doesn't have an SUV? Whoever can't afford one. 
(laughs) Because that's what you got to have today. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's the sports car crowd, and the wife has the SUV, and the guy has the sports car. What I'm saying is, you look back at the fashions of the 50s, for example, and you look at the poodle skirts, the big cars, the, the cat rim glasses, you know, with the rhinestones and the, and the big hair or the, this hair, that hair, and the ducktails on the guys. And we're in the same state of hypnotism through the power of identification, yet we think we're not identified at all, just like they thought they were not identified at all. This is just the way it is. It's the way everybody is. I'm not identified. This is just life. This is exactly how our identity was stolen. We don't know it. So our identity has been stolen. Here we are acting like these people living in the year 2008 in Vista, California. And we don't know that that's not who we are. We're totally committed to the idea, this is it. This is who I am. It may be an intriguing idea. Okay, okay, I can accept the idea, but, but that's all it is. It's an idea. It's not a reality for us. We can't not be this. You can't not be this false identity this false personality, and suddenly just be something else because you say so. So we find that we can't do. Oh, is that what that means? Yes, that's what that means. That means you can't be who you are. You have to be what you think you are. Why? Because that's what comes naturally to you at this point. Because you've believed it for so long, it is psychic reality for you. The thing is, is that it's not possible for everyone to awaken from this sleep, but it is possible for some. Not everybody in the 50s woke up. Not everybody in the 60s woke up. Not everybody in the 40s woke up. Not everybody in the 70s woke up. Not everybody in the 80s woke up. Not everybody in the 90s woke up. Not everybody in the 2000s are going to wake up. But it is possible for some to wake up. How many? I don't know. While asleep, we identify with every thought, every feeling, every mood that automatically comes to us. We don't have any choice in this. You hit a patch of rough road going 80 miles an hour. You don't have any choice. You can apply the brakes. you still got rough road to stop on. And if you try to go somewhere else, you back up, you still got rough road to back up on. You go forward, you got rough road to go forward on. You get off-road, you got rough, rough terrain. So you're stuck. This is it for you. This is where you are. Well, how did I get here? It's just not fair. Blah! After we get through all of that, what we must come to is, well, this is still where I am, and I've got to work from here. That's what happens when we start to grow up a little. So this prison is that we take it all as our necessary life because our identity was stolen and replaced by false identity, false personality. So we take this all as our necessary life. I say something to you and you go high and to the right. Well, what else could you do? Nothing. There wasn't anything else to do because this is my life. This you did these things. You said these things. These are bad things. And you did all these bad things. I have to react this way because this is how it happens in life. And that's what we're stuck with. It's a prison for sure. But it's a prison only because we think it's necessary. Because we don't know that there is some other way to react to something. That it doesn't have to be that way that we've always done. That way that we've always known. If we have a little knowledge and if we can develop a little finesse with that knowledge. By applying that knowledge slightly, we get a little finesse. We can finesse just a little bit, like a violin moving in a violin case. Not very much, but just a little bit. But that little bit can be a lot in the long run. Little here, little there. How to find our true identity becomes the big question for us. Self-observation in the right direction enables us to separate ourselves gradually from unnecessary forms of identifying. And what is it we identify with? Unnecessarily, we identify with impermanent thoughts. What is an impermanent thought? This is a thought that's not going to be around in five minutes. 
It's a thought that in a half an hour you're going to look back at with regret. It's a feeling that in, in two days you're going to look back at with regret. It's an action that in a week you're going to look back at and pull your hair out. Oh my God, how could I have been so stupid? You were identified. That's all. You thought this was your necessary life. This was the thing you had to do. Because false personality dictated to you what you must do. And where did false personality come from? Identifying with all the things that people gave us from the time we were born. How do we find our true identity? Self-observation in the right direction. What's the right direction? That's a good question. <laughs> That's an excellent question. I wish I knew the answer to that. The right direction is the direction that enables us to separate ourselves gradually from unnecessary forms of identifying with impermanent thoughts, moods, and feelings. We begin to have something through that which can see different eyes as part of false identity, having nothing to do with our real eye. Well, what is our real eye? I don't know, but it's not this, and that's what we have to start with. Well, how do you know that? You either know it in your knower or you don't. If you don't, this work isn't for you. If you do, get your climbing gear on, put your hiking boots on, get your backpack, get ready for some blisters and some hard trails, but get ready for some beautiful scenery and some good times, too. It's not all bad. It's a big world inside of us. And there's a lot of beauty there. And there's a lot of joy there. And there's a lot of good there. And there's a lot of other stuff, too, that we've been afraid of. And so we've tucked away. We begin to see our mechanicalness. It's the first thing. When we start to observe ourselves, we begin to see that we really couldn't do anything other than what we did. We really couldn't say anything other than what we said. We really couldn't feel anything other than what we felt because we don't know anything else, because that's what we've always done, because that's what our parents always did, and our grandparents always did, and their grandparents always did, and on and on and on. And what is the only way out of this? You remember the only way out of this? Consciousness, do you remember that? Light? Okay, just checking. So we begin to see our mechanicalness. Once we do, we're never quite the same again, no matter how much we fall back to sleep. It's like, you've heard me say for years, well, you're root. I've ruined your life. And I have. No. And do it alone. You were a co-conspirator in ruining your life. You allowed your life to be ruined because you wanted it to be ruined. Because your life as it was, was not the highest that you could imagine, the highest that you could sense. And so you were willing to have it ruined. Maybe not all of it all at once, but you're willing to have the parts you didn't like ruined. Well, ruin that first. And then it came time to ruin some of the parts that you did like. And it was like, well, I'm not so sure about this. And you took a little more convincing about that. Or maybe you took a little more time about that. But eventually, you even start to give that up. So more and more, we're kind of drawn into this by something higher, by something that calls to us. And once we begin to see that, we can never really go back. Oh, you can go back and fall asleep and forget all about it. But something inside of you starts eating away at it and waking you up again. Or the pain starts gnawing at you and you come to yourself again. We must struggle every day with identifying because we trade one identification for another. Okay. Now, it's just like houses in California. People, what, every three years? Average of every three years, buy a new house. And what they're doing is they're trading up. They buy their house, they can't really afford it, they can't really pay for it, so they get a bank to loan them money, and then they're betting that in three years the house will be worth more, they can sell it and get a better house. So they can sell it for more than they bought it for, and then buy a, a better house. And so every three years they trade up. In a sense, that's what we're doing. In a sense, what we're doing is we're trading one identification for another identification, but we want to trade up. We want to trade for better identifications. And eventually, 
we start to give up the identifications. But first, we have to learn how to give up one identification for another identification, and we're trading up. So you're willing to give up this toy if someone will give you that toy, and that toy to you is a better toy. And that toy to you is a better toy if you have understanding. If you begin to understand something about toys, then you can see that your block is really not as good as the erector set, that you can do a lot more with the erector set than you can with two or three blocks. And so you, be, you, you become willing to trade up. You become willing to let go of some of your identifications and identify with something a little bit higher. And that's how we start in the beginning. Now, I'm sure a lot of people would not agree with me on that, but I really don't care what a lot of people think about it. This is my experience of how we operate and how it works. And if it's not yours, then obviously you're listening to the wrong person. You need to be listening to someone who tells you what you know. It's a lifelong struggle because we can feel no real emotions if we identify. Now we know one emotion. We know one taste. We know the taste of identification. But since we have nothing to compare it to, everything tastes the same. So our life is our life. We identify. That's all we do. So we don't have another taste. But eventually, we get another taste. How do you suppose we get that other taste? By observation. Yeah. We identify most with negative states. This work speaks very little of positive emotions, though they aren't possible for us. The thing about positive emotions is they have no trace of identifying. So we wouldn't know one if we fell over it because we couldn't taste it. If you have something in your mouth that is tasteless, you don't know what you have in your mouth. So if you have a positive emotion in your mouth and it's tasteless, let me tell you what you're going to do with it. Spit it out. That's what you're going to do because it has no taste. You don't recognize it. And you know that you shouldn't eat things that you don't know what they are. You're not going to take things in that you don't know what they are. Unless, of course, you have a little more knowledge and a little more understanding. And that comes. Positive emotions are not self-emotions. All self-emotions are forms of identifying. You put yourself into this thing. You identify with this thing or this picture, this whatever it is. Yourself is in that. And once yourself is in that, negative, you are subject to negative emotions. Because whatever that thing is, because it's not really you, can be threatened. You cannot be threatened. What you think you are, what you identify with, is the only thing that can be threatened. Somebody goes after your car with a hammer. You, if you're identified your car, with your car, you will go out and try and stop them. You'll call the police. You'll get upset. You'll have feelings of how rude, how wrong. This is just isn't right. Call the police and all these things. You're, who's going to pay for this? Because you're identified with that. You find out that wasn't your car at all. And it's like, oh, the car that just looked like mine. Oh, well, then it's okay. Well, really, it's not okay, but... It's at least it wasn't my car, oh, thank God. What we call positive easily turns into their opposites, negative emotions. Real positives never have an opposite in them. They can't turn negative. But what they can do is they can disappear. Because real positive emotions are a function of consciousness. You've got to be in a certain state of consciousness. You've got to have a certain level of being before you can reach a positive emotion. The problem with us is, is our helium depletes quickly. We get up to that state, we get a flash or a taste of a positive emotion, and then it disappears. Well, where did it go? Well, it didn't go anywhere. It's still there waiting for us to get back up there. We fell back down in our level of being. That's what happened. And what gets us back down in our level of being faster than anything else? The anchor called identification. What is faster than the speed of light? A thought. I can make it to the sun faster than the light of the sun can make it here in my thoughts. And how do we identify? Identification can bring you down so fast. You can be in a state of reverie and then hear somebody smash the windshield on your car and the alarm go off and you are out of it right now, like that.
faster than the speed of light. Identification is the greatest anchor we've got. And it will bring us from the heights that we want to live in, where the positive emotions are. Positive emotions can't reach us in the second state of consciousness. The only place they can reach us is in the third state of consciousness. The second state of consciousness is the state of consciousness that we live in. It's when we're asleep, but the moving center is active. What's the difference? Well, the difference is when you're asleep on your bed, the moving center is not active. Then you wake up. What does that mean? It means your eyes open and you start to move. The moving center becomes active and you think you're awake. Well, of course I'm awake. I'm conscious now. And so we get out of bed and we start to move around and do all the automatic mechanical things that we do every morning and every time we get out of bed. And you know, because you did, if you did that exercise about getting up in the morning and doing things backwards from your normal routine, you know that you're asleep. You had to see that even though you set out, ah, yes, I'm going to do this, there were people who wrote themselves a note so they'd have it on their bedstand, bed table in the morning. Remember to do everything backwards. They knew that they wouldn't wake up and remember. And so even in the process of trying to do everything backwards, you forgot to do it. You couldn't do it. It's because the moving center is active. And that's the difference between the first state of sleep on the bed and the second state of sleep when the moving center is active. And there are a couple of little differences, but they're nothing really to, <laughs> nothing really to uh, get the Nobel Prize about. Let's put it that way. The Nobel Prize of consciousness doesn't go to someone in the second state of consciousness. The third state of consciousness is the state of self-remembering or self-awareness. It's when we actually become aware of ourselves. We actually begin to remember ourselves. We actually begin to be here in this moment. We are actually aware of ourselves here in this moment. Aware that we're actually brushing our teeth or making or brushing our hair or putting on our socks. We're doing whatever it is we're doing and able, because we're there, to not do that or to do that. It's a very different state. You have to taste it to know what it is. When we're absorbed in private interests, self-emotions, being right, complaining, we're identified with what we're not. Positive emotions cannot reach us because we're anchored to the second state of consciousness. And what is holding us, what is pinning us to the second state of consciousness? Identification, that which we are identified with. We are identifying, and those are the anchors that pull us out of the third state of consciousness and keep us locked in this prison, in the sleep, in the second state of consciousness. Where we're asleep, we're imagining that we're conscious, and our moving center is active, so we think, well, sure, I'm living life. And if this is living life, what are you doing here? Well, what you're doing here is living life out there wasn't what you wanted. There was something else that brought you here. Who would tolerate this if everything out there was just fine? If everything out there was just wonderful? If you loved the war in Iraq? If you loved automobile accidents with people being decapitated and, you know, babies dying here and bombs dropping there and this happening here and this happening here? If, you, if that was all fine with you, there would be no reason to look for something else. But because... Something inside of you said, this isn't right. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something better than this. And something inside of you knew that there was and yearned for it and longed for it. That's what brought you here. That's the only thing that makes you continue on this obstacle course. Because that's what it is. It's an obstacle course. And it's not easy. I know it doesn't appear this way, but I really do try to make it easier. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's like, what? You're the one making it difficult. No, really, I'm not. You're the one making it difficult. I'm the one making it possible. And your cooperation helps to make it possible as well. When you stop cooperating, then it's difficult. The second state of consciousness is really identification with money, identification with people, 
identification with ambition, identification with false personality. We're asleep in the second state of consciousness, and because we're asleep in the second state of consciousness, we're under the law of accident. In other words, we're dead in the water. And we may wash up on shore, but we may wash right back out. Or some current or tide might, riptide might take us, and we may end up out in the middle of the ocean somewhere, or over here or over there. We don't know where we'll end up because we're under the law of accident. Anything could happen. Touching the third state of consciousness may bring flashes of positive emotions. How you know you've had a flash of a positive emotion is suddenly you see things as you've never seen them before. You understand things as you've never understood them before. Now, it doesn't necessarily stay with you, but you can remember that something was different. Do you remember when you loved everything and everybody? Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you love everything and everybody? No. But you can remember when you did. You just can't get there again. Do you remember when you were nice, when you were kind, when you were generous, when you were loving? Yes, you remember that. But you just can't get there whenever you want to get there. It's like being in a dream where someone's attacking you and you've got a gun and you pull the gun out and the barrel just melts. You, know, you pull the trigger and the bullet just falls out like like water dripping out. It's like you want something, but you can't have it. You can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't do what you want it to do because you can't do, because you're in the second state of consciousness, not the third state of consciousness. You're asleep. When you have these flashes of positive emotions, when you're touching the third state of consciousness, try to record those moments. Try to record what's seen in their light. There are times when you have more light from a higher state of consciousness, and you see the unity of all life. You know that all beings have a right to be happy. And you know that you have been taking their rights away through your ignorance in your second state of consciousness, through your darkness in your sleep. And you know, and you, and you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. But then you fall back down through identification into the second state of consciousness. You forget all about that. Or you remember it, but it's just this dream. Just this misty dream, like the time we did the kinesiology and put the white sugar on your chest and test your muscles. And everybody said, oh, no more sugar for me. Right. How long did that last? <laughs> See, in a, that state of consciousness, that instant of flash of awareness, oh, my gosh, you could make a decision. You couldn't live it. You couldn't do it. See, and that's it. Somebody can take you, can flash you into this thing. You can be sucked up into this state of consciousness where you have flashes of awareness that you want to live up to. But then you fall back down and identify and you fall back down to the second state. And you can't do it. You cannot do it. You point the gun, you pull the trigger, and the bullet goes bloop and falls out the barrel. You can't hit what you're aiming at because you're in the second state of consciousness. How did you get in the second state of consciousness? You're identified with something. How do you stop identifying? You've got to learn how to self-observe and separate from the thing that you're identified with. It's not an easy task, but it can be done. So we try to record the moments of what we've seen in the light of these positive emotions because they bring a new meaning. And when we have new meaning, we can receive help from higher centers. We can receive help from higher beings. What are higher beings? Beings that are more conscious than us. Well, where are they? Well, they're right around us. Look around in the room. There are beings that are more conscious than you that you can see, and there are beings in this room that are more conscious of you that you cannot see. But sometimes, if you're in the right state, you can sense them, you can feel them. You don't know what to call them. Some people say, oh, they're angels. Some people say, oh, they're fairies. Some people say, oh, they're leprechauns. Some people say, oh, it's just pizza that I had last night, whatever. You can sense them. 
Finally, grace is the moment when we see in ourselves what we had not seen before. I wish to remember myself. Grace is the response to that request. And we get to see in ourselves what we've not seen before. Try and remember those times. Try and record them. Try and lay down a record of them. I write them down in a journal. I recommend you do the same thing because you can go back in your journal and see them and say, I did, I did feel that. I was in that state of consciousness. It really is real. And that helps you to keep going when it seems impossible, when you're discouraged. And those are the times we need to keep going, not the times we're all jazz. Oh, yeah, it's just, we carry ourselves. Then. We're just carried along by the tide. It's the rest of the time that we need something. And you're the one who has to supply that something by laying it down in work memory. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.